diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner and learning consultant, and this is... <laughs> Got excited there, tried to jump together. Uh, my name is Mel. I am uh, an author and a social ethicist. Yes, yeah, so welcome to Brave Space, where we're going to be having tough conversations around anti-oppression and communal healing, and today we're going to be talking about interracial dating. Ooh. I don't know if there was a drum... There, okay, I was like, wait, it's like, is there a woohoo drum roll? We got to... That, that was a good buildup. Yeah, <laughs> I, I felt excited when you said that. Awesome. Let's go. So <laughs> after our conversation, we'll talk about what we what happened this week. And then if we have some time, we'll take some audience questions. And today we have something that we've done a little bit differently. We have our first guest. Yay! Um, so, I know. I'm so excited. Um, so uh, our guest is a personal friend of mine. I've done some DEI work with her. She's also a DEI practitioner, but I'll read her bio, her official bio, and we'll bring her on to have be a part of all of the conversation for tonight. So. Carissa Hyun-hee Casey is an educator, a DEI consultant, a facilitator who works with various organizations to recognize and interrupt individual and systemic oppression. So true, because we do it together. And she does it outside of me as well, but we've done it together. So Um, she's also a lifelong learner. She's pursuing her doctorate right now in educational leadership which I'm not even sure how she's doing it because she's also a new mom. Um, That's pretty badass. I know. So um, (laughs) I haven't gotten to meet her daughter yet because of COVID, but I'm so, so excited. Um, So she's focusing her research uh, around impact and professional development on bias. Um, When she isn't working, she enjoys living with her partner and her dog who is so adorable and her three-month-old baby. So we would like to welcome Carissa. Drum roll for Carissa. Hello, hello. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks so much for having me here. It's really so we'll good get right you. into the conversation um, and we'll talk about how Carissa and I know each other. You'll hear more about us. We've done some work together. We worked at a nonprofit together. We, we've built DEI libraries together, all things like that. Um, so on our topic of interracial dating, I kind of want to tell a story that's personal to me, but... Um, so I'm not one of those people who I date, I've dated everybody. I've dated all races, but I remember the first time I like liked a white guy. Um, and so for me, the story goes, and I'm going to age myself when I do this. Um, it was before there was MTV, there was the box. And I was one of those people who my mom would never let me request videos. Like we don't got the kind of money. So I would wait to, for people to request videos. And I remember being in eighth grade and walking into the lunchroom and seeing a printout of the top three songs, and one of them was um, Hanson Mbop, and I was in love <laughs> with Hanson. Like, in lo- I, I was like, all of that long, I was like, I, I've never seen a guy with long hair like that. Like, I was in love, and I was like, I'm gonna marry one of Hanson. And my, my sister was like, who? 
So when I went home and told my sister, she was like, I'm sorry, what's a Hanson? And where's an umbop? And I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. So for then I was like, everybody was like, oh, Tashelle, you you can you date everybody, you love everybody. Because then it changed from Hanson to NSYNC to Backstreet Boys. And I guess the, the story goes, and if you ever talk to my sister, um, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna deny it. But me and my best friend wrote a contract with my sister that we were gonna marry members of NSYNC. A contract. <laughs> and it had a date on it. <laughs> a, a, a real contract that is she my sister was like, You're not gonna marry a person by NSYNC. We we're like, um, we are. <laughs> there was and, a contract to prove it. <laughs> and my and if you find you can find it on my Facebook because she put it out there when she tried to collect her money in twenty fifteen. But in, in my defense, nineteen what was it, like nineteen ninety or no, to the year two thousand, two thousand one, twenty fifteen seems so far off. And now we're six years past that. And she still talks to me about this money that I owe her. So that was my first experience or uh, I guess thought experience with inter interracial dating and uh, opening myself up because there were all, there were boys I liked all around, but NSYNC, Backstreet Boys and Hanson stole my heart. And now I look at them and go, I would not marry any of the guys from Hanson. Maybe still AJ from Backstreet Boys, but you know, whatever. I feel like so, I'm channeling the aesthetic a little bit today with my like hair and my flannel. Exactly. Like, I would so bah, marry. Bah, bah, I would marry you. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah. You listen. You copyright. It? Copyright infringement. I think new theme song to this podcast. I agree. I absolutely think not. But thank you. So we, I just wanted to tell that little story because I thought it was kind of funny. And my sister will still say like I owe her. And I think at that time it was like I owe her a hundred dollars. And could oh, I give her a hundred dollars now? But at when I was in ninth grade, a hundred dollars was big money. So anyway, um, so we wanted to talk to you all about uh, interracial dating, the experience of it, the history of it, and things like that. So um, I just wanted to bring that story. I don't know if anybody else had any like a absolutely. Carissa, tell us a, 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 your story of interracial dating. More stories. Yeah, you know, thinking about NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, I mean, I was all over their songs and making my own music videos through their music as well growing up. But I have to say, actually, I never would have thought I would be in this kind of podcast talking about interracial relationships because I'm in one. <laughs> um, I was raised in, in a very traditional Korean family. Uh, my parents immigrated from Korea and really preserved their, uh, their own culture uh, for about like 30 years. So I grew up watching Korean dramas, right? Being told those are the kind of guys that I will be um, marrying one day. And my mom was thrilled to set us up because that's that's kind of part of the culture is like, you know, parent involvement and them setting up um, who you're going to marry. And I, I, in their eyes, did really, really well until senior year of college with one month left to graduate. And then I met my spouse. Oh, high school sweethearts. College, college, sweethearts. College, college sweethearts okay but still that's sweet yeah i was so close to that one month you know and then i <laughs> met this guy that i just i said oh my he is just the one for me um and i'll tell you everyone more a little bit you know as we talk further about various things but my, you almost my made it out you almost close. made it out. <laughs> your mom was like we should have just you should have graduated early is what you should have done yeah yeah, yeah, biggest regret there. <laughs> no. So we want to talk before we talk about just interracial dating overall. We kind of want to talk about I wanted I wanted to bring us back to like the history because when people think about interracial dating, we think about um, most people know about the case of Loving versus Virginia. So I'll talk a little bit about that. So 
1963 was their case and they won in 1964 and it's Mildred Loving, Richard Loving and Mildred, Mildred, Mildred and Richard Loving. Um, and it, they were in Virginia and they were in a relationship. And I think actually uh, Mildred is part um, Native American as well. And they had been in a relationship for like 10 years like skirting the law, depending on where they would be, they would be moving. They had children together and they really wanted to, they had moved out of um, Virginia, but they wanted to move back with their children back to where their families were because they wanted to raise their children around their family. And they just kept kept getting um, stopped by police. Um, they In the middle of the night, they got jailed. So they reached out to a lawyer, a white lawyer, and they wanted to talk about like, we're already a family. It's legal in other states, but that was the like the the federal uh, or the Supreme Court case. Um, but people don't know that miscegenation, which is not being able to marry interracially, is the longest running racial law in history. Right. So when we think about racial laws, we think about Jim Crow. We think about all these things, but miscegenation is the longest running racial law, and it ran three hundred years, sixteen sixty four to nineteen sixty four. And the reason for it, and you know, everything is wrapped up in racism and patriarchy, but white women were marrying black men. And if you were a white woman and you had uh, land being passed down to you by your family, when you married that black man, it became his land because women were still property. So women were still property. So to break that up, they came up with the, you know, they had the term white and they made it so that black and white people could not marry. Now that's in the US because there are other laws in, the, in different time frames around the country when it changed. Like uh, London ended uh, chattel slavery before um, America did. So it's this long, longest running US racial law. And it's just so interesting because, because women were property, our property became their pro a man's property and now that black free black man had property so to stop that they in law in enacted and I'm talking with my hands enacted the law of miscegenation so it's the longest running racial law and I think that's such an interesting um point I don't know if anybody else has any uh anything they wanted to add to that or th things they thought about with that but I always thought that was such a long like it's such an interesting case and I think about it specifically because my mom was born in 1964 so it's not as if it's like uh, interracial dating in the U.S. is so old. It's like, it's still fairly new. My mom is uh, 58, 59, she'll be 59 in December. So it's only been 59 years that it's been legal. Not that it hasn't been happening, but that it's been legal. So I think that's such an interesting point when we're talking about it. And to your point, Tayshel, 1964, that's really recent, right? Our parents' generation, my, my dad actually was 14 at the time and he came to the U.S. when he was 18. So just four years um, difference there. And the fact that you just, I can't imagine now, right, it, that I would not be able to marry um, my current spouse because really, if you think about it, it's ultimately about that power and money. It was about property. It was about having that power, not even about people right so i mean not surprising right the way that all, all, a lot of our policies have been driven um in the u.s historically um but just the recency of it and you know like we know it doesn't just because that 1964 yes it was significant that there were some changes in terms of law but socially i mean for the longest time not a lot has changed and i think that's also part of some of the challenges i personally had um being in interracial relationships too yeah I'm Go familiar ahead. with the word miscegenation as um, meaning the mixing of blood or the mixing of mm -hmm. genes, right? Yep. And that's um, 
doesn't that tie way back into like the one drop rule and mm-hmm. all the rules of, you know people like basically white people thinking that you know their blood had like racial inherent like special qualities back to like the days of eugenics and mixing blood with people of color like depurified the race or made you a race traitor in some capacity so like so the property is interesting the 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 eugenics part is interesting and there's just like so much here and that's why it's like so troubling when people uh because i i think a lot of these views are still around right and people don't know i think a lot of people in our country don't know this history and how painful this has been for so many folks and like I've seen some current day anti-vaxxers talk about the fact that they don't want a vaccine because they don't want the mixing of blood and not realizing what that evokes for so many people. So anyway, Mm -hmm. wow, this is there's a lot here. (laughs) It is. It is. And it's so interesting. And that's kind of I mean, I brought the topic because I am also married to a white guy sh- shocker um he does not look like one of the members <laughs> whatever his high school picture my, my best friend did see a picture of my husband from high school and she was like he was exactly who you were in love with I was like but he didn't look like that when i dated him he's like the captain of his swim team but whatever um so but in, in the work that i do there's a lot of conversation around like people being married to being married and having interracial marriages and doing this work and having all of these kind of conversations. So it was one of the things that kind of stuck out to me in wanting to have this conversation because, you know, there's a lot of work going around, even in TikTok, like you see like um, conversations about biracial people and, and what, if your race is your phenotype and all of those things. So I thought it would be a good conversation to have. And um, knowing that Carissa also, we do the same type of work and that we both are, are married to uh, men of different races than us, which is a really interesting uh, conversation. So that's kind of why I wanted to, cause selfishly, I wanted to have the conversation because I really wanted to have Carissa on. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a part of it. So yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things. So one of the things I wanted to at least kind of um, talk about a little bit um, uh, in, before Mel, if you get into any questions, like um, what it means to be like fetishizing. I think that's a really, really big thing when we're having part of this um, conversation um, and, and something that my husband and I have had to talk about, right? The fetishizing of, and I think specifically to the fetishizing, of, the over-sexualization of black women in general, and then a fetishizing of Asian women. And I know you can speak to that, Carissa, because we've had some of those conversations as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I keep thinking about just um, my college experience doing, and, you know, I do this work with Taishal, which is awesome. Um, I always love working with Taishal, but also personally, I really wanted to be on here and talk about it because there's so many ex- personal experiences that I've never really had an opportunity to talk about any of these either. Um, so I may be unpacking a lot of stuff here. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think back to college and there's, there's uh, because that's a lot of the times where I went through the struggle of trying to figure out, okay, do I have to be with someone Korean or someone of my race? Um, or can I really just love who I love? Um, and one of the things that often crossed my mind that was when I would even get closer to um, white men and during college, I would always worry that it was this yellow fever because that's that was part of the social conversation, right? So-and-so has yellow fever. Hey, did you hear? Um, and so I would always worry that it was just more of a fetish and not really about getting to know me and being in real relationship. Um, and then there's also the different standard of beauty of how how oh for an asian you're really pretty oh for you know it's that it's that you are different but you know you're pretty is not for me but you're pretty or you're you know you're great so between those things like it was even hard to build any kind of trust 
to even start a relationship, I think, um, with people who are outside of my race. Because I also had that those messages come through. I think that's so interesting too, because I I don't I've never really it contended with the the term jungle fever, but there there are terms for this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if the, I don't know if there is a term for um, white men, like specifically white men dating Latin women, but I know there's the the thought process of uh, people being spicy, like you know, mm-hmm. as food or whatever. But like, yeah, the the thought process of jungle fever because I didn't go through it as much specifically. I think part of it because of what you talked about, Carissa, with um, not fitting the American beauty standard, whereas my thin one of my best friends is a thin woman and she went through it a lot where guys would be like, oh, I date you, but I don't know if like I'd be in a relationship with you. So I, I kind of like got spared from that because I was like, because I'm a, a, a overweight or bigger black woman. So that it wasn't the same thing. It wasn't like this. And we kind of called it, instead of calling it jungle food, we kind of like called it hot black girl syndrome. Like, oh, she's a hot black girl. He's a hot, and it, that happened so much in our early twenties where people were like, oh, you're so, they would tell her like, you're so hot. And they wanted to date her. And I'm like, and, and, and it kind of turned her off from having interracial relationships. Um, but I don't want, I mean, she's not here, so I don't want to <laughs> talk to, but she did listen to the first podcast and was like, yeah, I told you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we were talking about it, but it, it is. And, it, and I think I was spared a little bit by it, but not necessarily completely. Cause I also had a person tell me, I don't know if a white guy's going to want to date you. Cause you know, we usually date like thin women. And I was like, okay, like that was, it was a thing. So <laughs> it, it is part of the conversation um, as well. What does it what does it feel like to be fetishized for your race? I'll let you take I'll let you start with that. <laughs> I was thinking, where do I start? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, I I mean I think like I said before, I think one of the things is, is trust, right? Just from a basic human to human level, it's hard to make connections because you don't trust it's hard to trust if it's a fetish or if it's a true, genuine relationship that somebody wants to build with you, right? So uh, so the fundamental of dating and building a relationship just kind of goes away and or it becomes a little bit more challenging um, and relationships and dating is challenging to just start with. So you're adding on layers to that. Um, and then knowing also, I think it, it makes you internalize some of those things. And so your own self-esteem or your self-perception of who you are and how you perceive yourself also gets impacted. And it depends. I think I think about this as an educator, um, too, of just you know, depending on what age, because this happens not just in college, like I'm talking about right now, but it happens throughout. So mm-hmm. during especially those delicate times where students are like trying to develop their own identity and that's the kind of messages that they're getting is that, hey, you're not really, you're less than, you're different. Um, people may not want to really be with you. And I, I think during those times that that has a really severe impact um, on just confidence and who you are and there's confusion around who you are and the fact that you have to fight for who you are because of those kinds of uh, messages that are being sent around. I think too, for me, it's it was a, it, like, because I was spared some from it, it wasn't like as intent on in, in my engagements with, and I also, I will say like, I liked Hanson and NSYNC and things like that, but I went to like a predominantly black high school, a predi- I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. So the, the I guess, sexual um encounters or anybody that i knew and i mean sexual in like a enticing way was was men who who were black very often and that's a whole different conversation that we can have about being fetishized and and over sexualized as a black woman but it was when i started dating white guys them me wanting to like make sure that they weren't dating me because they wanted to see like um 
a girl who was like the, the black girls on in the videos, right? That was a big thing, like the video vixen thing, especially I would say in the early 2000s is kind of like when I, the first white guy I dated. Um, I didn't want to be like, okay, all black people are a monolith and we act like this and we look like this and we talk like this. And that was something that really I was conscious of when I was dating, just like making sure that it wasn't like, oh, I didn't know you, you liked these things, or I didn't know you were smart as well, or, or like dating a, a, you know, black women are being really fetishized for our bodies and being like, oh, you know, black girls have big butts. Like, that's why I like black girls. Cause I, I remember going out on dates with guys and I went on a get, I went out on a date with a guy on, um, from, I guess it was like, okay, Cupid or something. And he was super handsy. And I was like, no, we're not going to do this again. Like it's not, a, it's not a thing. So, so for me, it was kind of, it, 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 it didn't impact my psyche because it wasn't at a young age in that way, but it was kind of, and because I think of the dynamics, I wasn't really like, um, it, it didn't impact my self-esteem because I wasn't at a, an, I was post 25 really, or in my early twenties, post 25. And I was like, mm, you are just weird. This is not okay for me. So I think because I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood and went to predominantly black schools and it wasn't really until college that I started meeting guys that were outside of my race, that it was, it was a different in, engagement for me. So I think that for me, that's how it, how it impacted me anyway. Tichelle, did you ever get asked, um, I don't know how to ask this question, so I, I just thought I'll just be awkward. Just, like when you're going through your your handsome phase, or like, you know, like in white boys, um, did you ever, did anyone ever question like whether you were pro-black or whether you, you know, like did you ever get questions like that that you had to field? I think now, I, I get more questions like that now than I do um, than I did then, I think. So for me, I mean, I think when I was a teenager, people just thought I was like a general teeny bopper. So it was, I was kind of out in my neighborhood. It, I'd be like the black girl that everybody would be like, oh, Tyshell listens to white music. <laughs> and that would be like the thing. Because like t in my neighborhood, it wasn't like there was a new, like everybody, every black person in my neighborhood thought all white people listen to Nickelback. And then you start engaging with white <laughs> audience and, and the white people will tell you the only people that listen to Nickelback are black people. <laughs> so... So it was, it was more like that, but I, I, I get questioned now because I do DEI work. People will ask me like, do you like, oh, how can you be pro? Cause I'll say I'm pro black and people say, well, how can you be pro black when you have, you won't have black children, you'll, you're married to a white man. And I think, I, I think, I, I don't know if I told you this, this, this before that this was a, it was a funny thing that I put online because I don't, I was like, oh, I don't celebrate the 4th of July. And somebody commented to me, you're married to the 4th of July. And I could not do anything but laugh. But like <laughs> me and my husband have those kind of conversations, which we'll, I think we'll talk about a little bit later. So people question that for me all of the time, like really? all of the time, all of the time. Wow. I think because I'm so deep into this work now, I get it a little bit less, but people, when I was growing up, it was, you they show you talk white, you do this, you do that, you know, and that's a whole different, like being being an Oreo, that kind of thing when I was in my teen years. But as I started to do more, and Chris is like, yep, yep, <laughs> people calling me different things. So when I was um when I was younger, it was more about me. But when I start, so when I dated a white guy, people just expected I would date a white guy. But I remember the first time I met somebody and they were like, you're, you're not married to a black guy, he's white? And I was like, oh, it felt different for me. But people question me being pro-black all the time. And I always tell people like, him being white doesn't negate my blackness. And if I can't be in, I think people assume that when you are in a relationship, you amalgamate to each other. And I don't think that we do that. He is, my husband is white. He's also Jewish. 
Um, and we we kind of mix traditions together, but we celebrate Kwanzaa because I don't celebrate Christmas because I'm not Christian and all the other things that go along with that. We celebrate Kwanzaa and Hanukkah. And like, that's kind of, we Kwanzaa. That's like how we celebrate things in our household. And I am probably more engaged with all of the things I, with DEI now than I ever was when I was dating anybody else. And he does, his, his whiteness doesn't negate my blackness. I'm black every day, whether I'm with him or not. And I think we are having those conversations constantly for who we are. So people are gonna, people do, and people are gonna, um, you know, question my blackness, my pro-blackness. And then people are like, well, you have to have a black family. You have to raise a black family, live in a black neighborhood to be pro-black. I'm like, well, the way our society is set up currently, you can't do all of those things. Like I'm shopping at Target. I can't, like, I'm not just shopping all black everything. And you can do that more, but there are certain things that, you know, in our lives that we use as convenience and it's hard to find all of those things. I'm not saying that you can't shop black. I shop black. We just had our wedding, um, in August and every, we had a rabbi, um, officiate because I'm not religious, but every vendor I could find was a black woman. Every sick DJ dressmaker, the person who made my husband's suit, the tailor for my husband's suit, um, my wedding plan pro as black as could be. We, and we jumped the broom and broke the glass. Like we live in a duality household and that's how we are. So I'll, I mean, I know, and I know Carissa probably yeah. has some of those. Same I'd love to hear from Carissa too. Like, do you, do you get accused of like not being as pro Korean? I guess, I don't know what, what was this equivalent term for that I'd, one. Yeah. I'd love to hear about your experience in this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I'm usually specific to say I'm Korean because Asian is such a broad term. <laughs> that can be a whole nother conversation as well. Um, and I think I, I do get this. And I, I actually just recently was thinking about this a lot because um, in the Korean culture, uh, so I have a three month old, uh, we have a three month old and that's right around like a hundred days since um, she was born. And it's a Korean tradition it's called Peggy, hundred days. And you do a little celebration with traditional food um, just to celebrate because historically not a lot of babies, you know, survive the hundred days, but also fun fact is, I don't know if anyone's interested, but gestation wise, <laughs> if you uh, take out the two weeks before you ovulate, it's about a year for the, since from conception to when the baby's out in the world. So I think that's really neat. Um, but anyway, I was going to celebrate this. So I'm talking with family um, on my side um, and they're all really shocked that I want to do peg it. Um, they they perceive me as someone who um, only wants to celebrate things in the Western culture mm. because I have a white husband. Um, and I, I I thought that was just like interesting for me to just reflect on because even before baby, um, I did try to celebrate different Korean um, cultures. And, you know, yes, I didn't do it as much as maybe my family would have growing up, um, but it was just interesting and a shocking in a way for me to hear, wow, like you want to do pagan? Like, oh, and just like Taishel, what we like to do is we're trying to combine things. So we had the traditional rice cake and an apple pie because my, hus my husband loves apple pie <laughs> and we're just trying to blend, you know, different kind of traditions as well. But um, definitely get it. And I asked, I, I often remember when we were dating um, and I was living in New York City and um, my spouse like loved to go to K-Town, right? For him, it was like learning about this new culture by dating me as well and being in this relationship and he wanted to really um, learn more. So he would always want to go to K-Town, but I felt uncomfortable at times because we would get stared at. Um, I just, and this is my stereotype totally, but 
um, when I would see someone who's like my dad's age and they would stare at me, I just felt this like, uh oh, I know what they're thinking. They don't, they don't think I should be together. They don't think we should be here holding hands, all of this stuff. So that kind of pressure um, or feedback from socially from our surroundings, I think absolutely. And it still happens, right? I'm talking about when we started dating to now, this was just like two weeks ago. <laughs> that, that makes me that's so funny because that makes me think of like, I was dating a guy before my husband for a few months and we were going into a store in my neighborhood and he was like, no, we, he was picking me up from getting my hair done. And for for people who don't know, like the black hair salon is like a whole, it's a barbershops and hair salons are like a women's safe haven. Men don't really come in. The only people who come in are the people who are selling CDs, DVDs, socks, lighters, food, whatever. And I'm, and I'm in um, the hair salon and I said, oh, you can just wait in the car and I'll meet you outside. And he came, when I came out, he was like, um, did you not want me in there because I'm white? And I was like, no, it's because you're a man. But I mean, so, but I mean, I get that all the time too. I mean, my, I went to the hairdressers uh, maybe a year or two ago and my hairdresser saw me at Ikea with my husband. This is maybe it was like four years ago because we've been together eight years. And she was like, oh, you didn't want to speak to me because you were with your white husband. And I was like, no, I just didn't remember your name. Like, <laughs> I did you. She was the, the salon owner. And I was like, I just didn't remember her name. But she thought it was because I was white and he was he was white. And I'm like, no, I don't think that I'm better than you because he's he's just white. And I, I think that's just such the the buildup in people's heads. But they're so, you know, people when I first started dating my husband, I was like, are people looking at us? Are people looking at us? Sometimes people would look at us. Sometimes people would stop us on the street and say certain things. And I've had people say lots of different things. But it is if you it builds up in your head and you're like, ah, OK, like, just be quiet. Just keep your head down. Like, don't look anybody in the eye. And if the, if you do, just don't say anything because it, it could be a thing. But it is so like it makes you insecure because you think about it so often until you get to a point where you're not necessarily thinking about or you go somewhere new and then it happens all over again it's kind of like coming out but not coming out right so i lived briefly in um chattanooga tennessee and i know like every city in the country basically we're still a very segregated place we're still a very segregated nation um, but, you know, I like to sing some, some jazz and some music and the, um, the drummer that I was playing with, he was a black man married to a white woman. And we had a conversation around how hard it was for them to find spaces where they felt like they could be comfortable as an interracial couple because the space itself was very interracial. One of the only spaces in this little jazz club um, called the Barking Legs Theater, it's this like very hole in the wall place. One of the only spaces in the whole city that was like you actually saw people from different races hanging out with each other. It's very strange. And I think this happens a lot of places. Um, but, yeah, he you know, it was interesting. And I also, you know, had another friend, couple friend who um, who got married. I actually got to officiate their wedding, which was awesome. But they were saying and, and they were, you know, like young, like late 20s, early 30s. And they were saying that they had been together since high school. They were saying that they had horrible things. People said horrible things about them. Um, so this is current day. I think it's like important to remember this stuff is happening now, right? right? Uh, it's, it's easy to think of it as like something our grandparents had to deal with, but as you both can attest, and as I'm sure other people watching this can attest, like this is, this is here and now. People still think that this, that this shouldn't happen, that interracial relationship shouldn't happen. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't want to, and I want to, I want to make a caveat. I don't want, or not caveat. I want to kind of go back a little bit. I don't want people to think that like dating interracially is like coming out, but it is this, like you do have to tell people and it becomes this thing where every time you bring your spouse somewhere, people have thoughts about who you are and what's happening. And I, I remember being in college when I was, or being, I think it was my, one of the, a, a guy I was dating and somebody was like, Oh, you like white guys? Do you like him? Do you like him? Do you like him? Which is the same, which is something that LGBTQ people say that they go through as well. Well, they'll be like oh I'm gay and they'll be like oh do you like this man this man this man it's like no I still have a type I still have standards I still have people that I want like I don't think every you know white guy is cute every you know what I mean so it, I don't want to akin it to like the the painful process of coming out but it does at some to some degree sometimes mirror it in certain ways where you have to like introduce them you have to tell them about them and then especially in I would say in my line of work and probably even Carissa's line of work that we have to like preface it like my husband's white but like he knows like mm -hmm. and, and look we have these conversations so it's not just he's some you know, when I go home, I take off my DEI or I take off my blackness and I'm just like with my white husband enjoying myself. It's like, no, 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 I'm still black at home too. And if he, if we, if we weren't having these conversations, I wouldn't be able to be married to him. Right. Like that's kind of, I, I a hundred percent agree. And, and I know Tyshawn and I've talked about this, right. The amount of conversations we have at home with our spouses about everything related to DEI. I mean, we have to, that's our, that's the life, right. Um, and I also find that it's it's this even when we meet new because we just moved to a new state and we're starting to meet new people here too, um, though it's hard with COVID. But it's it's almost like you have to feel it out again and and see if like we're willing to be friends with people who can have these conversations as well because there's no denying like you know what things um, things are constantly happening that really um, just is been for you know, centuries an issue around race, right? If right. if our friends can't have conversations around this as well and recognize our reality, we're not real friends then, right? So it's, right. it's we need to be able to have these conversations. But because of that too, I think there's this period where when my husband and I, we meet new people, we go through this like carefully having conversation with them to gauge how much they're willing to talk or understand. Um, so it, it's, it adds a different layer to it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that it's not doable or it's not, you know, but I think that it adds a different um, dynamic to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think about that too, when we're thinking about like having children, right. And I know you just said you just had a baby. So people, I, I mean, I have to like engage with, especially people of color for me um, in that I'm having, I married a white man so I could have biracial babies. And I'm like, so like when people go, people will meet us and say, oh my God, your babies are going to be so cute. And I'm like, I know, aren't, and aren't I so cute? Like, I, because I know often they're saying it because this, there's this fetishization of biracial people looking a certain way. And I'll be, they'll be like, oh my God, your baby's going to be so cute. I'm like, I know my, their baby's mom is so cute. So I have to like follow it up by that because I don't want to, I don't want to tell people in the world, like, yeah, my baby's going to be ugly. Just be, <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. So I have to be like, it, my baby's not just going to be cute because it's a partly white baby because you also don't know what your child's going to look like. So, and you know, there are things that, I mean, I'm married to him. So I, there are th certain things I want my child to have of his, like I want the baby to have my eyesight because you see, I'm the only person here without glasses on right now. I did, I did, I wanted to feel apart. So I did bring my glasses with me. These okay. are my blue light glasses, but like I, my husband wears glasses. So I'd like them to have that. But you know, my husband has really strong nails. So I'd like them to have that, but I'm not thinking like, I want the baby to have your skin tone. And it's just like, you know, 
Ugh. So that becomes a part of it as well. When you're having children or thinking about having children, people want to celebrate that you, mm-hmm. because that's the other part of it. People feeling weird about going places because you don't want to be judged, but then also being fetishized by other people like, oh, you married a white man. That's so great for you. And I'm, or like people thinking I married my husband because of his money. And I'm like, when I met him, he was driving a 1998 Nissan Sentra. He was not pushing in the lap of luxury. <laughs> and, it, and and also he had that car since high school and had rust spots in it. So I, I didn't marry this man for his money and he's a PhD student. So you know that that's not a, a, a lucrative career. And I had the more advanced degree because he was a PhD student. So it's not as if um, I was marrying him for something, but people think that. So it, it is part of it. I know, Carissa, that's probably something that you've experienced as well. Yeah, it, it's so interesting, all those messages that you get and how that kind of also influences uh, later in life for you. Yeah. Um, I, I think I used to get that all, all, I still get it all the time is, you know, you're going to have, you have such cute babies, you're going to have such cute babies. And um, I remember all through our college, that used to be actually kind of a joke within the friend group too, of like, oh yeah, you know, well, Carissa is going to definitely, um, too bad she wants to marry Korean because she's, <laughs> she would have really cute babies. And then I did meet a white guy and have really cute baby. Um, but that's not because, <laughs> you know, it's not because of, um, you know, anything else beyond that she that she is just cute for who she is um but that also that kind of appearance um and that kind of talk around it also now i'm really con i'm aware of it from a gender and uh sex point of view right um girls tend to get all of these comments about their appearance versus boys oftentimes will be asked about what they want to do what their dreams are right so i'm also mindful of that and and making sure that they don't my child doesn't get some of those messages growing up um, about race and gender um, mm-hmm. because of those uh, things. And even now I, I'll get comments um, about, you know, everyone loves to say who looks like the baby looks like, you know, one or the other. And um, in the Korean, uh, well, I'm going to just limit it to um, my family, right? So my family often loves to talk about, um, you know, the skin color as well. So it, it, it kind of mirrors that colorism right within even the same race right the idea is that if you have a lighter skin color um it's actually more favorable um and they do have more privilege in that sense um in the way people treat them and so it was really just interesting is um one of my family members had kind of as a compliment said oh like your daughter is is um very white right and it's like meaning that okay that's a great thing because white is definitely better than being darker and so those kind of comments i'm like cringing and now that i have a child i'm like how do i stop these messages right how do i stop her and then and then once she gets old enough that people can say them to her and she understands them how do you not help her not internalize them me and my husband have had specific conversations around around that in that uh start saying now like how beautiful i am you know to so that when we have you're not saying it now he says it to me now but like when we have children making sure that we both say like oh mommy's so beautiful and, and baby's so beautiful because we don't want my child to think that dark skin is not beautiful like they don't we i don't want them to think oh i'm biracial and i'm so exotic and to to mm-hmm. like internalize that exoticism for themselves or that their hair is going to be big because you never know like there are children there are biracial children who have completely straight hair i'm in i'm say biracial mixed with black who have completely straight hair and look white what we call white passing 
Um, but are they better than, you know, a, a darker skin? Because there are also biracial children that are mixed with black that you can't tell that they're white and they, they look black. So it, it's, 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 it's a toss up. It's hard. Yeah. But, and, and I, and I think that's one of the things that's kind of interesting is, uh, right. Children will change, especially by, uh, multiracial children, biracial children will change, um, as they grow up. Right. Um, and, at one point they may be white passing um in this case or like my daughter may at times may look more asian so depending on those different um appearances too like managing and helping and helping to support her to be able to uh be comfortable in both of those different identities um right. it's definitely an area where we're having so much conversation around that as well right now you were about what to ask you, a question. Go ahead. What do you all think about the term passing? And I've heard a few activists in different arenas talk about how problematic that term is. And I, I, I honestly wonder what you think. I've actually heard it a lot regarding trans women saying that they're passing. And mm-hmm. um, that's probably more of a safety issue than what you're both talking about. But maybe, maybe not. So I'd love to hear what you think about using the term white passing. And So I think it's interesting. So and I, and I have to talk about it from, you know, from my perspective of being a black person, because it has a lot of historical reference in from slavery to Jim Crow to like people pat like there was a woman who married a black man who was um, enslaved a white woman who married a black man who was enslaved but um, she they had children and they could pass for white so therefore she passed her husband as her servant right for them whenever they would go out and her children as white children and her husband was just at home or something like that so i think it has a lot of historical reference so and i also think when we're thinking about what is white passing like somebody said the other day like um i saw a a a a biracial person saying like um people say i'm white passing but that's because your idea of white is kylie jenner but she's so dark now that you think that that's passing but really i do look ethnic she just looks like me Right, so it's that 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 thought process. So I don't. I mean, when I say white passing, I don't say it in a way that is like acceptable or great or amazing, right? Yeah. You know, and and I think in the trans community they also call it clocking, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I don't want, but passing for white, right? Like in being able to. I, I mean, I don't know, and, and I'll and I'll let Carissa go too. But you know, one of the things that me and my husband talked about is not calling our us calling our children black, right? And, and, and we also have to contend with what they will look like because, you know, there's a lot of conversation about whether your phenotype is your race and then your culture is your ethnicity, right? That we know that they're going to be black and Jewish, but well, if they look more white, are they then white, right? So <clears throat> the same, that same conversation. So we have to have, we're having a lot of conversation about that now. And that is the basis of being in an interracial relationship. If you're not willing to have a conversation, then it's going to be a really hard go of it or it's or it's going to be more problematic than not. But um, Carissa, I'd love to hear your perspective as well. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, recognizing all of the historical um, connotations to that as well. I think um, we're in a similar place as what Taishal was talking about is having conversations around, okay, what does it really mean? Um, and how, how do, what does it mean when somebody um, looks more white or depending on how they identify, right? Um, I think there's kind of a little bit of a difference. Like I may identify as one way, but also it's still a reality when people are going to treat me a certain way because of um, the way I look, right? So um, I, like I was saying with uh, my daughter too, at some 
point, like if people think she's white and she identifies as a mixed um, biracial child, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of different experiences there. But I want uh, there to be this just awareness that, hey, if people treat me with privilege because I look white, okay, what am I going to do about this too, right? Um, I, I just don't want it to go untalked about is basically, I think so it kind of comes back to this awareness piece um, and being able to talk talk through that. Yeah. We have a I, listener I, question. Um, oh, you do? We do? Yeah. Well, it's changing the subject slightly. So did you want to finish that thought, Taishal? No, no, no. Go ahead. I was going to, okay. I was about to Here, I'll, uh, I'll put it on the, else. I'll put it on the screen. Awesome. All right. So Thinking, think, can you read it? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll read it. Thinking of the topic, have there been any specific pieces of media that you've <clears> seen <throat> that have been especially impactful? Any you've seen that were especially problematic? Um, so I think we talked about this uh, as we were like preparing to even have a conversation when I was growing up, like watching the, the movie Save the Last Dance, right? And oh, yeah. we were talking about that because Carrie Washington's character has a, a monologue about um, how white women are stealing black men. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I don't necessarily relate to specifically that because my husband is white and I am black. But I think there, there, there's been a larger conversation too on, on TikTok about whether a, bi a biracial person has a black mother or white mother. And I think a lot of that comes from um, having children and uh, who carries the culture and how that culture is then passed down. Um, I think, but when I think, and, I, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but like, I think when it comes to, to media, we try not to like digest media specifically about, we're like, when, when Kamala Harris became the vice president, people were like, aren't you so proud? And I was like, well, I don't really like her politics. So nah, like it's not, it's not progressive enough for me. So no, but, but am I happy that she's a woman who's married like because her husband specifically because she is biracial even though she she well she's biracial but also her husband is a white jewish man they're like aren't you so happy to see yourself represented in the white house and i was like no um like that doesn't mean anything to me specifically so i don't know if there's any media i could point to that i said that i think is specifically helpful i think one of the first times that me and my husband had like a not one of the first times but a time that we had a really deep conversation was after we saw the movie 42 about jackie robinson because there's the the coach of uh, coincidentally the phillies was really really racist to jackie robinson when he came to play, but then he also talked about hating Jewish people as well. And I was like, oh, well that's the both of us right there. Like he hates black people and Jewish people. So then we had a conversation um, about it. I think when we're talking about things that are impactful for us, we kind of, um, he, we wanna learn the history of Judaism. We wanna learn the, you know, we wanna talk about what that looks like. We wanna talk about um, the history. So we have a bookshelf and we have one shelf that's like all, uh, about race and then we have one shelf that's all black authors about race and then one that's like all things about Judaism so like that's our our bookshelf that's behind us so we we you know we read those books we talk to each other about that we 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 are engaged we just we took a trip to St. Louis where my husband is from and in the car we listened to nice racism but that's us we're like that research couple so so I would say that's my experience specifically I don't know how about you Carissa yeah, I think media is a tricky one for me because I, I don't know if I often see um, mirrors as we would often see in our work, right? Things that are really reflective of my experiences and the kind of relationship that my spouse and I have. Um, so that also speaks towards it too, the lack of media right, right. that's available um, in 
you know, showing everyone and kind of um, representing all the different experiences there, it, that could exist in interracial relationships. So I think oftentimes we're doing kind of the piecing together, um, kind of like Taishal was saying, we are often trying to um, right. watch more in terms of Korean dramas, Korean reality shows. Netflix has increased a significant amount of those, um, especially with, I think, recent, like, um, explosion of Squid Game. <laughs> and, um, but I think, I think that's really part of, I would love to know myself, really, if there are more media, um, you know, resources out there that can help us talk about this. Um, mm -hmm. But as of now, I, we do a lot of our own research, just trying to bring it together and have conversations around it. I think the closest one right now that we recently saw is um, Kim's Convenience, you know, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty uh, lighthearted um, as well. Um, but not necessarily interracial dating specifically, but a little bit. There is a character in there, um, the brother, um, whose name is Chong, who is in a relationship with a uh, white um, partner. And just some of the kinds of, um, you know, language barrier or even just like um, customs of, you know, um, mm -hmm. complimenting when the mom cooks something, you know, there's different things like that, that that kind of shows the reality of it. Um, but also, that's just one. Right. I think that's right. what's problematic is that there is that lack of. Um, I was thinking about Kim, Kim's convenience store, yeah. too, because just the and, and I think the thing that's so great about that show was its simplicity and regularity. Like it was just so like general. It was like this is Korean life in Canada. And it was the same. It's the same for me. So like there are not that many shows that just depict like black life as is the nineties had a lot of them for, but for me, it's in, it's the show insecure. This is black people living there. It's not like the Asian sidekick or the sassy black friend. It's like, this is that. And then we mix white characters in. And that's the thing about when you're watching a show, if you watch a, a black TV show, there will be white characters, but you can watch a white. You, if you watch a black show, there will be white characters. If you watch an Asian show, there will be white characters. You can watch a white show, a show with all white characters, and you will never see a black person. Like people argue about that, about friends, about there were three characters, three black people and one Asian person in friends, and they all seemingly played the same character. But you know, so I, I digress. That's all, that's a whole other. Media, I do but, want, I think that's a good point because that made me think about just one thing too. It's the same with my story, right? What I'm just saying is I'm just saying, I'm just telling you my story. I do not represent any other Korean um, people. Um, even though there is sometimes that burden of it, right? Um, and that's the same with convenience too. I think watching it, there's times where I'm like, oh, that can be a stereotype, turn into a stereotype. You know, sometimes there's definitely um, stereotypes come from some truth, but it's just not the whole truth or it's not right. applicable to everyone. So there's that danger of that, that um, just want to call out. Yeah. So I've got a Go question. Uh, mm -hmm. are, <laughs> are there any folks that you would recommend that they should not date interracially? And I have a story about this. <laughs> tell, so tell us your story, and then yeah. as, we, as okay. we try to form our answers around that. Yeah. So I'm very curious to hear what you all think. So I in I got divorced in grad school. Sad, sad, very, very sad story. We need a bottle of wine to discuss. But uh, I'm fine now. Don't worry. Remarried. Very happy. Okay. Okay. Uh, but I started dating again in grad school, and um, you know, jumped on OK Cupid, went on some dates, whatever. At one point, this very handsome black gentleman who is a law student, messaged me. He seemed absolutely wonderful. Uh, I was at a point in grad school where I was waking up for kind of the first time to a lot of my, you know, 
like eternalized white supremacy for lack of a better term and i was mm-hmm. so f- i was so scared to do further damage to a partner by like having half half-baked racial consciousness that i i just didn't message this guy back and then i got worried that i was being racist for not messaging him back and like oh am i racist for you know not being into dating a black guy but there's a reason i don't want to date a black guy because i'm still learning a lot about this stuff and i I don't want to do more damage so it was like this whole like i got agonized over this and i ended up just not messaging him and then i felt bad but anyway uh i took myself out of the fray in that particular story at that time in my life but yeah so given that uh what would you have said to me at that point if you <laughs> if you could say should i've just gone for it anyway i don't know uh, maybe life could have been maybe not. <laughs> maybe, maybe not maybe you didn't for a reason but yeah um i, I don't know do you have did you want to uh, jump on that question uh carissa or do you want me to start go ahead first <laughs> um so one of the things i think and this is something that i'm sure carissa will agree with if you are not ready to have conversations about race and have your whiteness challenged you shouldn't be in a relationship in there an interracial relationship yeah. because it is a constant conversation. But it's the same thing. Like I think as we are challenging not only white supremacy and we're also challenging the patriarchy, if you're going to be in a heterosexual relationship as a woman with a man, he has to be ready to have like, just because you're in a real, like, politicians use this all the time like oh I'm not you know misogynistic I'm married to and I have daughters and you're like mm, that's not how that works um, so <laughs> you have to be ready to have those things challenged we constantly have conversations about race we have conversations about gender but we're having conversations about race all of the time all of the time like I'll give my husband a book uh, we'll read it he had like he has to be engaged in this conversation and probably more than the average person because we because we because I do DEI work but I I wouldn't recommend it for a person who is in the stage of fetishism which happens a I'm not gonna say it happens with all but there's a lot of white women who fetishize black men and don't even know that that's what's happening yeah. Right. They'll be like, he's so gorgeous or he has a big, you know, whatever. And they're not and, and men often because they lean into patriarchy, think that they're just so they love being, you know, enamored by women that they think it's great. But I, you know, I had a conversation with one of our producers as we were talking about interracial dating like a couple years ago, and there was a, a, a bi- an interracial couple, a white woman and a black man, and we were just like, and white women need to know. And she, and this white girl got up and was like, because her husband was black, but I'm not, I'm not saying that, that at that point you should be like, well, we should have some of these conversations. But the same people who shouldn't date interracially probably shouldn't have like transracial adoption because you have to know and be ready to learn and be ready to engage. It's so much because he needs to know that the things that I go through, but then also not know that he can't be like taking them on. Because one of the things that I see so often in this work is white people say, I really am doing DEI, or they'll say I'm passionate about DEI work because my husband's black. But what about all the other people that are not your husband? right? Or your, or your cousin's black or your whatever. And it's that same thing. Like you have to be ready to have conversations and have your view challenged. And those, and the people who are not ready for that should not have, should not be dating interracially. I don't know, Carissa, what do you, what do you say to that? Yeah. I had a lot of thoughts around, um, and, and I'm thinking about it from a family point of view as well. Just thinking, you know, if you, because I remember early on and I was joking before when I was saying my parents, um, love my spouse more than me right now um for sure and if 
you know, I think knowing that my family was having a hard time processing it for themselves and we went through years of like, you know, talking, not talking because I was dating interracially. And um, I think if you also have a family dynamic like that, you might just want to, I don't know about should or should not. I think it's like really thinking about are you going to be able to have some of those conversations? Um, and there's hurt that comes along with a lot of times when, we're, when when your family members are not accepting of your the person that you love, right? And so how are you going to repair and restore that kind of relationship in the long run? So if you're not, I, I would say you have to be ready for that. So like Tysel saying, you have to be, you have to have conversations. So you have to know if you're going to be ready for those conversations, if you want to maintain and still have relationship with people um, you know, who you, you're close with. And I think I wouldn't have been able to do any of this or be still in this relationship if my partner wasn't open to those conversations. And there's the reality, right? We have a child and we have to think about, um, I, I remember having this conversation with my uh, husband when we were dating. He looks just like his, his dad. Their genes are pretty strong on that side. Um, and I said, I'm sure you may have pictured your child, your future child looking like you. Your child's not going to look like you, mm -hmm. right? I, I know that <laughs> for sure. That's the first thing that came to my mind. But mm -hmm. so we had to have some of those real conversations. So if you're not going to, if you're not prepared for that, you know, I think relationships of anything, dating, marriage, it's, it's hard as it is. There's like, you know, work that needs to be done around it. So this is an added thing. So you, so you do need to be prepared for it. Um, I think is what I would say. It's so funny. Cause I didn't even get into the family aspect of it. Now my family wasn't like against me dating. My mom knew I liked white guys from the Hanson, right? Like, so she was like, mm, and, and it also, right. And it also kind of like, my mom was like, it, it steered away from the boys in my neighborhood. So she was like, mm -mm, my daughter's not dating that. She likes sync. So that was like a thing she would say. But she, my my mom also loves my husband. Like he said to her, because um, Yom Kippur just passed and it's like, you know, you, you, do, uh, you do atonement. He said, oh, have I transgressed against you? And she says, she brings that up in conversations like a month later. She's like, Ben asked me if I transgressed against him. And I, I was like, okay, mom, like relax. It's, it's, a, I was like, it's, he didn't just, oh, okay. I, I let her have it. Um, but it is. And it's, those are conversations we have to have with his family, with my family, um, with, with how his, his family interacts with my family. Like the first times our parents met was at the wedding. And I was Oh, just because our mo our mothers both have really strong personalities. So I was like, how's that going to be? They met at our first, our first pandemic wedding, uh, which was 2020. But just if, you know, we're, you know, they say you marry a family, but are you willing to give up your family if something happens, right? And we, Carissa, we had that same exact conversation about having children. I was like, I said to, I, I think we were like laying in bed one day and I was like, are you going to be okay if your children look black and they don't look like you? And he was like, yeah, like I wouldn't marry a black woman if I wasn't okay. I was like, but like you're gonna have a child, and they and you're gonna be walking, you and your white self gonna be walking with this brown baby. And I was like, there's a lot of conversation for me on my side because people maybe may see me and think I'm my child's nanny, right? Um, they're gonna think you're, they could think you're an au pair, right? Like, and you're like, um, I'm actually not. Like, I'm actually this is my child. Um, but if my child is light, then I'm the nanny. If if my child is dark, then my husband adopted a baby right so in, in that conversation but I had that I had that same thought I was like you know you got your kid's gonna be black right like <laughs> or do you and he was like yeah and I was like 
I'm just saying, like it's a thing. So that that we we're we have to we'll have to talk after this too, Carissa, because we're yeah. probably having the same exact conversations with our spouses. Yeah. So definitely, definitely. Um, I just think that people should really be ready to have have conversation. And that's one of the things I was when we were start talking about this, and I was like, are there any advice that we could give? And I started pulling up articles. There are articles out there, people, and all of the articles, no matter which ones I saw, said you have to, you can't shy away from race you know, race-based issues, right? You can't shy away from um, women in Atlanta being killed at a, you know, at a at a massage parlor. You can't shy away from George Floyd being killed by white men. You have to have those conversations. And if you're not, then your conversation, then your relationship is based in like falsehood and it may work for you, but is it going to work for the children that you're gonna raise, right? Like that's a different thing. So I think that's, a, that's a, the hard one. Go ahead, Mel. Well, it's, yeah, it's amazing talking, like, whenever, oh, God, whenever I post, like, a, you know, anti-racist thing on TikTok or social media or something, so I will invariably get a dozen or so people, white folks, jumping on there saying, I can't possibly be racist, I don't want to talk about this, we should just have colorblindness, uh, because I have a, a spouse of color. It, 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 it's amazing to me the amount of white people who say things like that. Like, my best friend is black, so therefore I don't have to talk about this or think about this at all. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> it, you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> no. You know? And, I mean, I, I recently had a conversation about that, too. And I know we can probably, we'll have to table that conversation for a different one when we're talking about. Today, I was actually talking to somebody about racial identity development and there's an actual like process for it for BIPOC folks because we have to have a racial identity development and for white folks and there are there are people of color who want to be white right that want to be to align themselves with whiteness we can see that there are people like Candace Owens out there there are people who have these who who live in that and they're just like and they and sometimes you you will also hear white people say like my friend said I'm not racist because and my friend lets me say the n-word and I'm like oh your friend needs some help send them to me too (laughs) send them to me too so it is it, it is really really hard in having some of those conversations I know we've reached um, some time to, uh, we're, we're getting close and I kind of wanted to get in a, an audience question, but I wanted to see if Mel, you had any other questions or if Carissa, if you wanted to, um, chime in with anything as well. It's okay, Mel, go ahead with the questions. I think my, you my last question was, uh, you know, and this is something we wanted to talk about when we were planning the show is like any last advice for doing, um, for, for doing anti-racism work while dating interracially. And we talked a little bit about having these difficult conversations. It also brings to mind things we've talked about in the past. Um, uh, not expecting, if you're, like, for example, if you're a white person dating a person of color, don't rely on that person to educate you constantly. Then you're, like, taking advantage of their time and effort, you know, when you could be educating yourself. So that seems like another big thing we should definitely <laughs> mention, too. I think, too, so I'll say one of the first disagreements that my husband and I had when we first started dating, and, and this is his racial his, his racial identity development and, and his awakening before 2020, thank goodness, because I'm, I'm, I'm not sick of hearing people say 2020 was their racial awakening. It's just becoming really old really fast. Like, racism was happening before then. But he said to me, this was 2013, he said, um, well, things are better. And I was like, no, they're not. They're just different. He was like, no, but they're better. And I was like, no, they're not. They're just different. And he was like convinced that they were better and upset that I was telling him otherwise. And and because my husband is a researcher by nature, he came back, like we had a conversation, he left, we were dating, so he went home. This was a conversation we were having while we were out. Um, and he came back and was like, 
whoa, things are not better. They're just different. And to me, that meant a lot to me because he went out and did the research by himself and then came back and we had a conversation. And then I knew I could date him because if he was not, if he would just, if he was stuck in that things were like better, then I don't know if our relationship would have progressed to the point where now we are married. That was eight years ago. Um, but that he did that, that meant so, so much. And I think for me doing this work is staying authentic. I have to untangle myself from white supremacy culture as well. And I don't, and I, and I stop people. And one of those things I was saying earlier, when people say, oh, your child's going to be pretty because they're biracial. No, I stop people and let them know that that's not the goal. That's not the ideal. So I do the same thing with oh, you're gonna, you know, make a lot of money or your husband or you, like my my last name, I took his last name, but I hyphenated because I am still me in, in our marriage as well. But like, I don't think that I'm better because I married a white man. Like, if anything, he's better because he married me, a woman. Like men do better when they marry women. Well, men who marry women do better health-wise. But I don't, so I like make sure that I'm staying grounded and, and, and I don't think it's as hard now because so much is happening in our, in our stratosphere around race that I have to stay grounded, but I don't want to be, uh, connected to him because of his whiteness. I want to be connected to him because of his personhood. And I think that pulls away from the fetishism of any person like, uh, like, oh, I want to marry a tall white man and he's going to be so, I don't know. Prince Charming, or I don't know, a pilgrim, or whatever the I don't know anybody, but like no, that's not what like fantasizes about marrying pilgrims. What <laughs> I don't know, what but you, you know, like what is it? Like, there's like a like a, I don't know, maybe not. I don't know. I don't think about pilgrims. The tall, I'm just saying. The tall pointy hats and the stern looks. You cannot like, wait to marry a, a pilgrim. I'm sorry, that was hey me. baby. Anyway, Carissa. <laughs> I don't know if I can have the same train of thought after that one. <laughs> <laughs> Anything pilgrim. that you have to stay into about being doing DEI work and being married like yeah. pilgrim. Sorry. <laughs> I you know, I, I kept thinking about, you know, there's times where I, I feel really exhausted um doing the work and tired and I, I and the fact that I have a I have a partner and the reason why I did fall for this well, not fall but like why I really engaged with um, my partner as my life partner is because I just saw him as a person who really genuinely was open to learning and growing with me um, mm-hmm. and not not just you know be, like as partners in life and so um, anything anytime I feel exhausted I know that he's someone who I can talk to and really try to decompress um, by by processing what might have happened. And he does the same thing where he'll go and research things. One thing that's really been helpful for me in doing the work um, is I've also, we've had intentional conversations around him stepping up and saying things instead of me, right? And there's also the family dynamic again of sometimes coming from him, it comes differently, A, because he's a white male, and B, because like he might have a different family dynamic um, structure within his family than me trying to say something. So we've talked about, I, th- I think some of those intentional conversations is is what's important. And I needed to come up with the courage to do that too, because growing up, I totally internalized actually a lot of the, the dominant culture. So I totally said, hey, no, I don't know if there's white privilege. Like if you asked me as a high school student or younger, I wouldn't have been 
talking about some of these systemic oppressions. So, uh, you know, like I need, I need that courage. Um, I needed that courage to step up and talk about it, but I also needed a partner who can do that. Um, and I think that's what keeps me going too, is like knowing, just knowing that there's people also like Tyshell that I can talk to mm -hmm. just that kind of network and social, um, social connection is I think important in doing any of this work and for all of us it's not just for people with BIPOC right it's white people benefit from and need to uh do this work absolutely it's not <laughs> and it is I think too like also knowing to like not surround yourself with just other white people like that can be exhausting in itself as well because then you're constantly you know having to learn and, and teach and things like that or not learn but teach and that's the thing my husband gets chances to spend his white privilege like I told him like when we have a baby like you need to be like because of black maternal health issues you need to be advocating for me when I am under when I am like use that he's like absolutely so we talk about we have a plan for like being able to address doctors and and fortunately he his mother his mother's a physician so we talk about all of those things as well but we need to be having those conversations right because it's really really important so I wanted to get to an audience question. Um, I don't. I, I know uh, Mel's a better out loud reader because she's an author. Um, so if you're willing to, I think it's under our our second. I'll just three. I'll show it here. Oh, good. Um, oh, it's not showing the whole thing, but yeah, I'll, yeah I can still of... read it. Um, okay, so here's the first part. Wait, hold on. This is in three parts. Yeah, it's it's a it's a long question. I think it was somebody. Here we go. Yes. Okay. Uh, when I mention to people that my children are black. Uh, many white people will try to correct me and say that they are mixed. When they say that, when they say this, it really bothers me. If these white folks had no clue who my kids, if these white folks, I'm not doing a great job of this, but. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. I gave you problems when you did, I'm sorry. Uh, if these white folks had no clue who my kids were or who the parents were and saw my kids walking down the street, they'd say those are black kids. I feel as if these white people get offended if I or my kids don't honor the white quote unquote presence within my kids. Whoa, that's, that's a really interesting way to say it. Um, my kids identify as black, so I call them black. My question is, uh, where's the rest of this? I'll just read it. Let's see, what, here we go. My question is, what's wrong with my children identifying as being black even if their mother, me, is white? So I, I thought when I saw this question come up, I really thought about it because me and my husband have made a conscious decision to call our children black um, because we, I, because of, because of how I am and I'm being, being pro-black, but then also, um, like I said earlier, <clears throat> my husband is Jewish. So their religion and part of their ethnicity will be Jewish. Now we also have to contend with phenotypically what they will look like. They may not they may not present phenotypically as black people. Um, but I think, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that that's a chance for that mother to challenge white supremacy in that. Um, I think white families would want you to do that on the street. Most people are going to call her children black. Right. And then if they identify as black, people are going to accept them as black because of what they look like from, from her question, her saying that they look black and they, um, call themselves black. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with calling your child what they prefer to be called, whatever that is, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's the first thing as a parent, like uh, Carissa and I have had questions and of course, because she has a child already, we've had, we've not had questions, we had conversations about 
Um, you're, you get to be one, a vessel for your child to get here as a mother, but then you also get to be a steward, right? A shepherd of them, but they are going to be whoever, whatever your creator or universe has allowed them to be. You're just going to be here to show them the way and for them to, to teach them to be the most authentic them. So if her children feels like they are, <clears throat> feel like they are black people. And if they phenotypically for them look like black people, I don't think it is anything wrong with that. I think we also have to really, and this goes really deep, so I'm not gonna go too deep into it, but black people were the first people. So anybody can have a child and that child appear to be black, right? Like that's a real thing. There's genetics that happen in that way. So there are white women carrying black children because phenotypically they might look black, right? So I think there's nothing wrong with it. I think you just really have to challenge who's ever saying that to you. Most likely it's usually family. They'll be like, but they're half white, they're mixed. And I'm like, <clears throat> well, your children are 100% white, 100% black, and who they choose to identify is is their their choice. And that doesn't stop them from being part of your family as well, but why can't you just have black people in your family? Why can't you just um, be okay with them being um, black people? So I think that mom is doing the right thing by, by honoring what her children want to be called and how they see themselves. And it sounds like she does not have a problem with them being black. She doesn't not feel a part of them or they, that they are a part of her, even though she is white. And I think when we're talking about that, also we also have to then unpack whiteness and say what is white or what is, and cause like, what is her family heritage? Is it Irish, is it Italian thinking about like that? And what is whiteness? White, whiteness was made to exclude other people. Right as a as a term, they're they're white. They have white blood, and it's like, well, okay, what does that mean, and how does that play out? And I, I'd love to hear Carissa your um, take on it as well. Sure, I mean it's a really interesting question, and one that I'm really thinking about within my own context and uh, my own identities uh, racially, as well as a identity as a mom. Like, what would I do in that situation too? And I like I, as I mentioned, you know. My daughter um, at various points in life may look more white or more Asian. And um, once you get to that age of being able to talk, I, I think I would absolutely have that conversation with my daughter too. And I would want to honor where my um, daughter is in terms of how she's identifying herself. And I also feel strongly about uh, making sure that she recognizes that is that with white experiences um, that there is privilege and that if she's being treated in that way and she's gained she's getting privilege I want her to be able to also recognize it and counter um, racism and other systemic oppressions when she sees it so I want to be also mindful of that and having that conversation of like yes I'm this is how you identify um, I'm, I'm gonna honor that right now absolutely um, but I want to keep having conversations so that it's not forgotten as well and you know like my journey as well right through uh, my understanding of my racial identity could constantly change um, until I had a better understanding of you know right now as an adult the actual history behind it and the systemic oppression behind it um outside of my own individual control so mm -hmm. i think it, it's a i think i think the i think there can't be that right or wrong necessarily um in this case it's, it's such a hard question as well um and i think there's a matter of the kids being confused so we also i think have to be mindful of where they are in that journey um, and just meet them where they are too, knowing that we can continue conversations later on so that hopefully they have other awarenesses that kind of help them better understand the context of it. Too, I, yeah, I think about that because I, I think too, like 
I want to, me and my, ch- my, my husband have had the conversation of calling mm-hmm. or of saying our children are black and that they're Jewish, but who knows who they decide to be, right? Like what if they don't have a religion? What if they don't um, identify with that, being able to honor that for who they are? But if her children have um, decided to say this, like, you know, being able to embrace their cultures, right? Cause it's, you know, we think I, I want to be able to focus a lot on culture, right? Like hopefully we'll get there, you know, um, the, the rest of the world will get there. Hopefully inside of my house, we get there a little bit quicker because we're there and we're having those conversations that we want the world to be having that they are not like wanting to present, um, their privilege first. Um, it's, it's going to be a lot harder because, um, the adjacency to whiteness for blackness is completely different. Like if we're looking at whiteness and what's adjacent to whiteness conditionally or whatever, black people are not there. Right. And I'd want them not to be like, well, there's no white privilege. And then I'm like looking at them like, no, 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 this is not a thing. So I think about that for that person, honor who your children feel like they are and also talk to them about privilege. But then also as a white mother, it's your job to then talk to those other people about white privilege and the privileges that they have to honor this white presence within them. And, you know, as you said, like, that's a really interesting way to put it and to be able to combat against that. Like, but, but what is whiteness? Why does that matter? Um, my children are who they are and they are many things, but their culture is this. And I think that's a, I mean, it's, it is a hard question i can't answer it specifically for that person but it from from my view i think that that's part of it yeah it just seems like i just thinking so the white people who are taking issue with you know this woman's like biracial multiracial kids like identifying as black which like they are black like i i would guarantee you those same people are like oh i'm 116th native american so i get to have a scholarship for you know what i mean like i I feel like that that seems like kind of an like yet again another insidious like function of whiteness to to claim to claim racial identity when it benefits us and to reject racial identity when uh we get to marginalize someone else so yeah i think it seems it seems what you're saying sounds really important because i've actually heard a lot of biracial multiracial people saying they don't feel like they quite fit into any community and I think if you bring this back to community and the inheritance that you have mm-hmm. as being part of a community like that's like that's a gift right that should be a right. gift not a burden I think that social culture of like having to categorize yourself like what why do you have to and and in some ways um we do have to name things soon in, in order to address it so there are times we need to do it and I think about it from the student, the kid's point of view because um, I'm 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 Asian. My husband's white. Um, neither of us have that experience of being mixed race or biracial, but we're going to be raising a child without having had that experience. Mm-hmm. And it is. And for, so I've been trying to do. My husband and I both have been doing a lot of reading, right? Trying to hear stories from mixed race people about their childhood. And the biggest theme that we keep seeing is confusion, um, right? Because just as Mel, you said where I'm, I'm not like quite like my my uh, mom, I'm not quite like my dad, or I'm not like my other mom, or I'm not like, you know, um, like, it's just this confusion of trying to have to figure out why I have to like, indicate where I am, I'm, I'm developing my identity as is, and it's confusing as it is. But, you know, it's interesting that we also, in a way, try to have our um, kids have to identify at certain points. And I think for me, it's going to be a little bit different too, like um, the the identification part of it, because 
because of the struggle of chattel slavery in this country and where black people currently are and that this identification means so much to us because pro-black is a thing black is beautiful is a thing so having part of those conversations and but we are also Carissa, when you said it, it was like we are also doing the same thing and luckily there's so many right now at least celebrities that are all, both black and jewish which people don't even know about so there's rashida jones from the office there's tracy ellis ross there's uh lenny kravitz there's Drake, right, and somebody like you know what I mean. So we have you know like a, not a, not necessarily a map or a blueprint, but like they, there are people that they can look to, and they're also we. I just went to a conference and there was a biracial black Jewish person, um, and there's Jews of color. There's a the Jews of color org um, that are ran by you know Jews of color of many different um, uh, ethnicities, but one of the people um, <clears throat> is a biracial Jewish woman. A biracial black Jewish woman, and there's there there are activists out there. So that was really exciting to us when we like found that there were black biracial black Jewish um, activists that embrace both parts of their culture because it is something that we won't um, have experience, and I'm not going to be. So we want to like uh, be able to have somebody that they can engage with, or what that looks like for them. That's going to be different from who we are, and being able to accept that. We could probably have this conversation for like another two hours because there's we so totally much to unpack. Can. And I, I know we, we did it. We did like a, there are some things we want to talk about and we won't get to all of them just because there's so much. And so maybe we'll have a, a, a round two. There's definitely some other conversations that I want to be able to bring Carissa in on. So I just really wanted to thank you for being here with us, having this conversation, engaging and being open and candid about your personal life and the work that you do and how it impacts in that way. So I really wanted to thank you. And I just selfishly wanted to bring you on because I like working with you like all the time. So um, I wanted to say thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And, and you know, Taisho, you know that anytime. I always love working with you as well. Um, but it's been really refreshing in a way too, because like I said, I, I don't think there's been many platforms to really share some of those these kind of stories um, and it was so relevant especially having a three-month-old and we've been doing so much work ourselves in our house right now <laughs> um, with being uh, interracial parents so thank you so much and creating this platform for all the topics that you both are covering um, now and in the future as well absolutely awesome. thanks for being here and um, please just keep up the good work with you being a mom of a three-month-old and a PhD student I just I don't know how you are superhuman. That is amazing. And good job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad I was going to say if today there were any hiccups, I'm going to, I was going to say it's because I did not sleep very much, but couldn't tell, honestly, <laughs> always engaging, always engaging. So, um, we wanted to, to do that. We, you know, we wanted to make sure we, uh, we got this conversation in and that we got an audience question. So thank you all for being part of this uh, conversation with us and we'll be back next Tuesday at 8 p.m. live having another conversation and you can find us and Mel can tell you all the places you can find us because I always forget yeah all the places okay you can find us. so live you can watch us on Facebook YouTube Twitter mm -hmm. uh, most weeks you, you can find us on TikTok we had some technical difficulties this week um, you can also subscribe to the podcast on Apple Store Google Play Amazon Music or Spotify. So there are so many ways to follow We're this show. We're in your pocket. We're, <laughs> We're on your computer. Everywhere. <laughs> We're everywhere. <laughs> uh, so until next time, uh, and join us back here uh, next Tuesday, we'll be having another conversation. See so. you next time. 
Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.